0: Start. Today's episode of Be Real is brought to you by National Geographic's limited series Barkskins, starring Marcia Gay Harden and David Thulis in an epic tale of survival, exploitation, exploration, and murder. Based in the New York Times best-selling novel by Annie Proulx, the series follows a group of outcasts and dreamers as they battle to escape their past while navigating the brutal landscape, competing interests, and tangled loyalties of the New World. Hailed as engrossing by Vanity Fair and visually stunning by TV Insider, Barkskins airs Monday nights at 9, 8 central on National Geographic and is for your consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series. For more information, visit www.natgeotv.com FYC. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie-reviewing, reappraising, genre-hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solomon pfeiffer And I'm Noah Ballard. We are here today to talk about the film's of the late Lynn Shelton. The film director, writer, and actor passed suddenly on May 15th at the tragic age of 54, but she was a luminary in the world of American independent filmmaking with eight feature films, a host of interesting television that I think we're going to discuss on the sides today. So we'll get into four or five of her movies, but before Noah and I start, I want to tell you that also on the Playlist Podcast Network here, there are wonderful programs like The Fourth Wall, The Discourse, The Deep Focus Podcast, Indie Beat. So please find the Playlist Podcast Network wherever you subscribe to your shows. Leave us a comment and a nice rating, if you would. And thanks for listening. Noah, my friend, let me open the floor to you. How best to remember Lynn Shelton?
1: Well, I mean, that's a huge responsibility. Um yeah, I don't know. I think you hit the nail on the head saying that most listeners probably know her from doing incredible work on like interesting network and streaming television. Uh not including but not limited to glow, AP Bio, Love, Fresh Off the Boat, two of Mark Marin's specials. Uh, Santa Clarita Diet, Shameless, Mindy Project, New Girl, all this kinds of stuff. And then between that, she also made a series of about six independent movies that were at the forefront of the mumblecore film movement of the late 2000s and early 2010s.
0: I think if you know who Lynn Shelton is by name it's cuz of her movies. If you don't know who she is, it's far more likely you've encountered her through those shows.
1: Yeah, she's the kind of director you would see over and over again, you know, at least if you're like me and stream television like crazy during these times. It's like, oh, she is on these she's on little fires here. I know oh, when I went back and watched New Girl, like she did all these episodes. It's like mm-hmm. her name is very much there and working with top people. So,
0: she's a Seattle film figure. That's where she begins her filmmaking career in the mid-aughts with uh, movies like We Go Way Back, My Effortless Brilliance, Hump Day. We're going to talk about a couple of those. Um, but she had a lot of those she wrote as well. She acts very interestingly in a couple of these, but she spent her 20s in New York. She was involved in, in theater. I think the thing I really admire most about her career is the, it's not that I admire her lack of formal training. It's that I admire the aspirational spirit of pick up a camera, write your script, write your friends, like listen to people in your hometown and and write about their stories. I think as someone myself who like became engaged with art worlds through scenes in college towns and mid-sized American cities, I think it's so cool to see somebody like really have a locale about them and there is this inherent connection to like indie rock in the pacific northwest too and this kind of boom time of the late aughts at the same time as sundance is still going full speed i think she brings about those associations in a really um pure and aspirational
1: way for sure yeah i was reminded a lot too of Seattle is sort of explored the same way that Portland is explored in the Kelly Reichert movies that we did a couple weeks back. Um, Very interesting, too, that these ones aren't so maybe obsessed with like the natural world and how it's being corrupted. But if anything, it's more of the opposite of that. It's the, it's the natural world. That's like creeping through in a pleasant way in the buildup that exists in the Pacific Northwest. So it's it's sort of the city dwellers. Right, exactly. And so it's, and that's, and also her movies, I would say all end on, a positive note if that note maybe is a little forced sometimes in the way that like Kelly Reichert is not that interested in giving like a Hollywood ending to her movies.
0: Yes. I think Lynn Shelton is a sentimental writer and filmmaker and Kelly Reichert is quite the opposite.
1: No, I think that's totally fair, but I think you could be duped with the sort of indie spirit of all these movies, that it's going to be like some weird fuck-all ending. Sure. And maybe makes her work seem a little less approachable. But if anything, I think these all end sort of, I mean, to quote her own, to use her own movie title in a touchy-feely kind of way.
0: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I wanted to recommend a few, before we jump in, we're going to talk about, we go way back Hump Day, Your Sister's Sister, Laggies, and Sword of Trust on today's show. But I just wanted to recommend if you want kind of a deeper picture of how Lynn Shelton interacted with the film and TV and creative worlds, uh, Jason Bailey, who regularly contributes a uh, new releases column to the playlist for Vulture, when it interviewed people like uh, Michaela Watkins, Allison Bree, Caitlin Deaver, um, just with an all-out kind of remembrance, there's some great stories in there that I would recommend. And then the remembrance of her in *The Stranger* um, is so heartfelt; it really feels like a a city that kind of had its guiding light ripped away. Like it, as a film scene, I I just I feel for them so much. Uh, do we want to talk about Marin at the top at all?
1: I mean, if you want to cry your fucking eyes out. <laughs> listen to i mean the her his interview with her mark maron's wtf podcast we're talking about uh his interview with her from a few years ago it's i mean the first 10 minutes when he talks about her is fucking brutal he, he's the openly interview, yeah but the interview after is really interesting and like really shows I, I thought it was kind of funny because like she knows how to turn his like kind of creepy older guy aesthetic into something (laughs) a little bit maybe more romantic than it does with other female guests he has shall we say sure and it's really it sort of plays with his not only his uh his remembrance of her and the best that he thought that she brought out of him but also his character then in sort of trust of like Mm -hmm. knowing how to do the Marin thing in a way that like literally puts a good light on him. And of course, she did two of his specials, including uh, the most recent one, End Times Fun.
0: Right, right. So we're going to begin in 2006 with her first film, We Go Way Back. It is essentially the story of a put-upon 23-year-old actress uh, slash office worker slash theater manager who is... Just living a very like difficult, unfulfilling life with like the the things that the people in her orbit sort of sometimes absurdly make her do, and the the framing of the movie is that uh, Kate, who's played by uh, Amber Hubert, is that right? Yes, keeps reading these letters that her thirteen-year-old self had, you know, written her her future self.
1: Um, Right because it was her birthday and in the opening scene she has to like basically throw herself her own surprise party Right uh, Because yeah she has to do all these things for this theater group that she is sort of at the opening She's like the managing director stage manager person, but then she gets cast at the birthday party uh, For the lead of Hedda Gabler Dear Kate at 23 Hey What's up, grown-up me? How's life? Do you have a boyfriend? Do you still love Carson McCoy? Are you still best friends with Maxie? Where do you live? Seattle? Paris? Wherever you are. I hope you're doing exactly what you want to do. If you ever get sad, really remember that I was thinking of you once. But I guess I can't anymore, because now I'm you. So maybe you can think about me once in a while. That'd be nice. Bye for now. Love, Kate to 13.
0: We Go Way Back, I think, has a lot of the hallmarks of the work you're going to see to come. And it's also uh, quite a bit different, I think, than a lot of the rhythms she ends up embracing in her later films. How do you see this one fitting in, Noah?
1: When I think of Mumblecore, I think of like so much fucking dialogue and like people talking things out to death and like not really moving through scenes. Yeah. And in this one... It, the camera moves a lot and it's almost focused more on the action happening like her making cornbread and then like burning the cornbread and making cornbread again like it's focused on her hands moving through that scene like the eggs being cracked and like whereas the camera will be glued to like uh, Mark Duplass in the next movie like this one it doesn't quite focus on her maybe as much as it focuses on the world she's moving through
0: Yes and sometimes her rather like subjective perception of the world she's moving through I mean especially when you get into the scenes in the theater The stage lighting has that way of like making very clear like She is alone and in a borderline surrealist way We're going to see the divides between Kate and the people that allegedly care about her And then of course you have this idea of the, this 13 year old self coming back to haunt her Almost introducing a kind of magical realism that is completely absent from the movies to follow
1: Yes. And I mean not to spoil anything, but there's almost sort of this like magical realist uh like sexual adventure she goes on that then like kind of lands pretty sturdily in sexual trauma.
0: Yeah, I would say so.
1: So basically the movie the movie sets up several times that like men are constantly being like, "Hey, are you all right?" and her being like, "I guess," and them being like, "Well, let's have sex." Yeah. And at the like third time this happens, uh, it's like a little bit more forceful than it had been previously, which looked consensual. And that sort of causes a fracture in her personality where her like 12 year old self who had just been sort of reading letters is presented literally that other characters can see her as well.
0: I also think it just contributes to a, a movie that is much more difficult than a lot of the other ones we're gonna talk about today. Especially For because sure. you you already cited the the lack of uh moving through a film with dialogue as your fuel. Um you you don't get a lot of Kate as a present realist human because she just doesn't have the words.
1: Yeah, that's the interesting Cause there's a weird wall between you and Kate and you almost like don't really get to know her until like halfway through the movie when the camera does start like pointing itself at her. Yeah. Cause a lot of it's like the other people around her and like the weirdo directors and, uh, her co-stars and all those fucking potatoes. Right, And there are a lot of like good visual gags in this that like make you want to almost think it's a workplace comedy. Like I think this movie has as much in common with office space as it does with like indie you know, entrees into this kind of cinema. Yeah, the- Like the Joe Swanberg school of just pick up a camera and shoot a bunch of people in a room.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think the setups, frankly, are just much more involved- um, right.
1: But that being said, I mean, this one is, as you cited earlier, like her sort of teaching herself, Lynn Sheldon, how to make a movie. And I think that that is very apparent here. You know, it's sort of lo-fi in its camera work. Um, you know, the there's no one really recognizable on screen, which helps a lot of these other movies out. It does. Uh, I really wanted this movie to hit that, like, don't think twice moment where, and I think all the other movies do, but this one, like, never really brings all these people in the world together in that sort of communal hangout way that I think ultimately becomes Lynn Shelton's strength, both as a television director and as a movie director. It's like, she's so good at, like, getting hang, like in a place where it's not only good banter, but it does something unexpected and definitely changes from when she calls action to when she calls cut. Like she'll end up having these great moments where you think it's a comedy during one shot. And by the end of that shot, it's like a drama now.
0: That is the amazing alchemy of her work at its best. And I
1: think this one is maybe a little bit afraid of being funny but it has funny things like the potato obsession of the right. director and of this movie visually is so funny.
0: I think the office space comparison is sort of the movie at its best of the like, you know, here's this re regional or local theater director. Who's like, you know, so self-involved that he's finally ready to conquer Ibsen and casts this young woman who's way too young for the head of gobbler part. Um, but in other movies has just been like lying dead on st- or other plays has just been lying dead on stage. Um, and then he's like, you need to do it all in Norwegian. Everyone else will do it in English. Cause that will increase the alienation. That's true to the text. And then halfway through the movie, when he decides like, I don't think it's working this thing where you learned. Well, Norwegian. after he
1: does it once and it's clear that he has not run this by any of the producers of this production, uh, no. uh.
0: That's I mean, really funny. I get
1: his thinking like Fiddler on the uh, Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish uh, before the shutdown was very successful. But yeah, the head of Gobbler only one character doing Norwegian <laughs> so much so that the other actors can't pick up their cues. Uh is so funny though. And like how they're doing potatoes, and then there's that visual gag where he like holds the like rutabaga and the carrot, and he's like, Maybe this'll maybe this little tweak will right. fix it, and it's like, that's not the problem, dude. You're like, you're not getting the play.
0: So when the comedy of the movie uses Kate as a type, where the joke is like, is she really gonna be put upon more by these jokesters? That's funny, but considering the takeaway of the movie is this young woman's trauma and never really getting to Know her as a well, she doesn't get
1: her revenge, no,
0: right? Which is she, I thought for sure she was going to make it back into the city at the end.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. Like, everybody kind of gets their like their due in maybe like too pleasant a way in a lot of these movies, but this one is so far away from that, I think, as to be. I mean it just smacks of like student filmmaking where it's like they have to get fucking they have to get fucking murdered or kill themselves at the end just like Hedda Gabbler. Like that's what this movie kind of feels like. Right. Is that like not only including Hedda Gabbler but also including her plight.
0: Sure. So I don't actually really want to reg on this movie much more. It's her very first and we have far better For movies. For sure. I have far better movies to get to. So why don't we tell people how we rate films on Be Real and we'll come back real quick and say our piece. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible
1: ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October.
0: Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa,
1: can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. In my regards to King Todd, asshole. <laughs> Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining.
0: Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating.
1: What do you think? I think this movie's good, bad. You can see a lot of good habits forming that will make better movies. Um... And I, I, it makes sense that people got excited about her after seeing this as her first effort. So, gotta start somewhere.
0: Indeed, I am in agreement with that, 100%. So, why don't we go to 2009 and her breakout film, Hump Day? The pitch for this movie is easy, which I think is part of what makes it so good. It's, what if two straight best friends... Try to make a porn with each other for as art to get into a Seattle-based a, a festival. The Humpfest is the thing that the Alt Weekly, The Stranger, puts on. Um, yeah, so your two friends are Mark Duplass and Joshua Leonard. Uh, I love how this movie plays with archetypes. Um, you really think it's like going to be a Yumi and Dupree
1: type situation, <laughs> 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 which I'm is. Always- I always expect it to be a you, me, and Dupree type situation. In every movie? In every movie. In every every just moment of my life.
0: Yeah, every time we hop on a FaceTime, there's a hint of you, me, and Dupree.
1: We have to do a lockdown. Is it going to be like you, me, and Dupree?
0: (laughs) This is a reference that people still like, right? Um, Oh, boy. Uh, So Ben, Mark Duplass, is the... You know, the office worker who has a little house in the suburbs and he and his wife, played by Alicia Delmore, are trying to get pregnant and they're in their early to mid-30s. And then his friend Andrew is, uh, you know, world-traveling backpacker with a fedora he says a princess gave him in Morocco. Um, And he comes to stay with them unannounced in the middle of the night and you think it's just going to be these clash- Of, you know, types, and very quickly those types are subverted and inverted in, I think, some really creative ways.
1: I'm Ben. I'm Andrew. We're We're old friends from college, Uh, we've kind of gone down different roads. Ben is Mr. Motorcycle Adventuring Man. I've been living in San Cristobal de las Casas, down in Chiapas, Uh, Where? (laughs) I have a really nice house and wife and stuff.
0: You're out at a party. Now, the funny thing was, we were drunk when we first came up with the idea, and then it evolved into this weird straight guy macho thing. This shouldn't be about us I'm challenging not... each other.
1: Give me
0: the Oh, it's, it's on.
1: You said you were gonna tell her, and she said she knew, and then I just talked about it, and I guess she didn't know! I cannot believe I'm talking to you about making a porn film with him! You're pretty solidly not gay yeah, I think the same thing about you too. <laughs> we might
0: have to impose the pre-woman rule: no kissing. This is weird.
1: So Andrew kind of reminds me of the hammer from the probably one season of the High Fidelity TV show on Hulu, yeah. where he just kind of he represents this force from one's younger time who rears his ugly head and is just like, "Hey, do you want to behave this way that we did, you know, when you were a younger different person closer to college?" That and which
0: fills out his overstuffed backpack is the past.
1: Right. Most like when back in the before times when like I would travel to Portland, like Sarah would probably see me as the Andrew character and you're the Ben. Yeah. It's a you me and Dupree type situation. <laughs> But anyway, but it, so it yields this one wild night where Andrew and Ben, they're like supposed to have dinner or something with Anna, the wife, but then it turns out to be like a party at someone else's house and Anna says, I'll stay home and Ben goes out and Andrew goes out. And yeah, they get drunk and they enter this pact. And it's the, watching them sort of interact as men, like one upping each other in, I think a way that feels very familiar to me, just yes. like a totally like straight faced, sarcastic, like I'm not going to break here. Right. Like the joke is, will these two straight men like film a porn together? And like, they just like won't back down from it.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but it, not in, like, a like after-school special, like, bullying is bad.
0: No. No, The one of the great things about move, this movie is all the things it doesn't do with, like, gay panic and um, pressures and nagging wives. It's so smart to never do any of those things. Because um, Lynn Shelton's way too smart for that. I think this is one of the first films where you see that um, her characters even as they like make mistakes left and right um just have these moments of like really intense and insightful reflection where like the moment where you know one person tries the the really biased film line of like mark duplass's character being like i don't know honey i think i actually do want to make this pornographic film with my friend because, like, I have all these feelings and sides of myself that are tamped down and have been eaten by our domestic situation here. And she just comes right back with, like, do you think I just, like, exist standing by the sink in my own life? Like, you don't think I've tamped down those things? She, she, Her dialogue is great for that.
1: Right. And going back to my earlier note about how s- scenes and even shots can, like, change genre from moment to moment... There's this great scene where uh, Anna, Ben's wife, and Andrew, the, uh, the usurper from out of town, the carpetbagger, <laughs> uh, are drinking whiskey. And they're just like going shot after shot after shot. And they're like having a great time and like getting to know each other. And it's these like two worlds coming together. And then you realize that like Ben has, of course in the previous scene lied to Anna about his involvement. He's like described himself as like a grip on this movie when really like, it's just him (laughs) fucking. Uh, And so Andrew's just like, it's so great that you're so cool about Ben like doing this movie. And she's like, Oh, I'm like not like that much of a square. And like the, it's, it's sitcom-y to see like how many lines they'll go until the truth of what they're actually talking about is revealed. And it almost plays like, that's why all this television is going to make a lot of sense. Cause she's like so good at that. Like, you know, very network sitcom tropey, like mistaken identity or mistaken understanding about something. Let's see how long we can play this game of tennis.
0: I agree, but the higher level thing about a movie like this is it makes you simultaneously like use those two sides of your brain, like the whole lead up to the thing you know what's gonna happen is funny. But the minute the switch is flipped, and I think there's actually I, I think I agree with you, that scene's the best one in the movie. The minute that Anna realizes and gets mad and gets up from the table to go get her husband, Lynn Shelton starts cutting in double time. Like there's been a rhythm to her cuts throughout that conversation and then she cuts twice as fast as instantly the scene is anger and that's so hard to balance.
1: Right. But then the movie physically feels different especially when like Ben comes downstairs and he's like trying to manage drunk Andrew who's like revealing this thing he didn't want revealed and also like managing his wife's anger. It's so interesting. But it's also like a really fascinating sort of like... you know, vacuum science experiment of the kind of gaslighting that I think Sheldon is ultimately interested in exploring. Mm-hmm. Like how, like the weird stories that like men tell themselves <laughs> that ultimately ends up being like, we should just get naked right now. Actually, I think we got naked too fast. We we just have to have our, like our bodies take over. Right. You know, like these weird... Like, what are you talking about? And I think that starts to, when that crack starts to reveal itself, especially in the scene where it's revealed what's happening, uh, it becomes a much stranger and more maybe interesting movie.
0: I think that comes up in a lot of these movies, actually, because I think it actually is like a theme of adult life as you, again, leave that college base and get toward middle-aged is some of the most exciting and fraught and open times that you ever have are like seeing friends that you haven't seen in forever and that feeling of like are we is it gonna be the same or like are we gonna you know how do we get to that deeper level that like we used to be at and i think that right this movie is such a ridiculous like literalization of that impulse you have of like how do i make the most of this experience like with my friend like how do we like really like touch souls (laughs) and these two guys are like well we could fuck on camera and not back down from
1: that yeah well i mean that was the situation with that we were presented with chance but we opted to do a podcast instead that's true yeah i think it's so interesting that this movie is funny and brave enough to say on one hand like guys we don't have to live by this like these bullshit domestic tropes that the American culture preaches that we live by. But then also like maybe we're not as extreme as being able to like bend our sexuality at will. And maybe like the life that actually does make us happy is something more domestic than maybe as younger people we thought was acceptable.
0: Yes, and that we should like just keep talking. Cuz like the moment where to say the goofy phrase I just used, the moment where the two best friends who haven't seen each other in forever do touch souls is not when they try to make the porn. It's when they have the conversation about like I had these feelings about this video stalker clerk or I don't think I'm the person that I think I am. Like they get to they have that moment in the unexpected way, in the same way as they actually do make A compelling awkward piece of pornography of like what if two straight guys tried to make a gay porn because like you do watch that film and it's very funny
1: yeah i think this movie is a good good
0: yeah i mean just the order we're in kind of uh makes me jump the gun here but i think this is the best of the five they're my favorite anyway um interesting Watching these movies at their best there is this giant sweeping comedic premise that will carry the 90 minutes but then the scenes themselves turn on drama and just observed vocal details of life like i just love it when like andrew shows up and he says like i you know i love what you're doing here ben with your house and your wife like i just respect the fuck out of that and there's like <laughs> so- <laughs> There's something about like having an interaction with someone where somebody like exaggerates their enthusiasm for you in such a way that like you know you can't top it, and it's actually scary to like how much they've just expressed for you. So you're kind of like, yeah. oh yeah, right, right back at you, man. And those are the kind of conversational truths that make for yeah. the best mumblecore.
1: Yeah, no, good mumblecore to me sounds like a conversation that like I've had with you, definitely. Uh, And I do feel like we've definitely had that conversation where I'm just like, dude, your apartment's so great. Like, your life is awesome. Like, I'm so happy for you. And you're like, what are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) What time is it?
0: What time is it? Smoke outside.
1: (laughs) But this one, like the others, it's an interesting sort of like when your buddies in town unexpectedly kind of premise movies, I mean, the, the pornographic film aside, that I really kind of dig about it because it's just something that I personally look forward to. The same way, did you say that Hump Day was good, good? Yes. The same way that Your Sister's Sister, the next movie we'll talk about from 2011, uh, is just like a movie about somebody going to a lake house for a weekend, mm-hmm. which is just like... Something that I absolutely go nuts for. Love going to, like, a house by water for a few days to, like, work through some things.
0: Yeah, you made the very accurate observation on text last night or this morning that most of these are movies about people who just need to take a week off from life to reassess.
1: Yeah. And often they do, especially in Your Sister's Sister. So this one's like her... If she had, like, a big breakout within mainstream movie making it was probably this one because it like got a big deal out of Sundance and it like had Emily Blunt in it uh Mike Birbiglia is in it Duplass is back um Rosemary DeWitt. you know and this is also when like the league's picking up a little bit so Duplass is carrying a little bit more weight this is a movie
0: that opens with like a one-year anniversary remembrance of Mark Duplass's character's dead brother and Berbiglia gets up and gives this sort of impassioned speech About what a great guy he was And how he saw Hotel Rwanda And it made him volunteer And then Duplass interrupts him And he's like, actually I've known my brother my whole life He was kind of a bully, especially when like we were kids He was very physically manipulative <laughs> Which is a dark, funny way to start the movie But in, these, in this sort of tragic light It makes me think of Lynn Shelton And the 100% approval rating that she has from everyone who remembers her just says the same thing about her, that she was an enlightening, magnetic, beautiful soul who was equitable in her work and inspiring in her work. And Caitlin Deaver in that Jason Bailey remembrance is, has that moment of just being like, the things that I'm saying, I know that everyone else is going to say because everyone else felt the same way about this beloved person.
1: But it does. Yeah, you're right that it, that moment does poke maybe at the authorial voice of, you know, wondering what people will say when one is gone. Yeah, it does. You know, in one hand you have, yeah, there were like 90% of the room is like, this guy's a saint. And then Duplass pops in just like, actually he was a nuanced human being with good and bad. (laughs) Um, But that's a great, that's a great speech and really does set the mood that this movie, dare I say it, smacks of the big chill
0: Ah, uh, sure, yeah. yes.
1: Where this movie, like from the jump, has that that bite to it, you know, like the the driving to the funeral and seeing whoever the Kevin Costner who's not, not credited. Or rather uh, as not the body, seeing him, yeah. <laughs> and then seeing like the cuts in his his arm and the big chill in that opening. Uh this blow up to me feels like showing that teeth a little bit.
0: Yes, for sure. The point I want to loop back to real quick is just the She never made a movie that made more than This is her highest grossing movie at $3 million Which is not very much Um, She didn't level up in this sort of traditional industrial I mean we'll talk about her TV But in like a, you know, and now you get a movie You get $10 million to make a movie And now you get to direct something that's based on intellectual property What she did was through her spirit and her art collect these actors, a cohort, as you described them over text earlier, and the cohort just gets more and more and more impressive. And I think that thing that we're robbed of, to be honest, with her passing at 54, is there had to be a movie in the next five years with Marin and Alison Brie and Rosemary DeWitt and just like all of these... All of this talent just getting better and better and better and embracing her ideas more and more and more. That's the thing I think we'll really miss.
1: I mean, her legacy will be supporting and solidifying some of these actors and personalities as household names beyond her lifetime. Sure. You know, even like pulling Jeff Garland, you know, and giving him like a juicier if bit part in the next movie uh, or like just like pushing Mark Maron over the edge of like everybody fucking knows who Mark Maron is now. Mm-hmm. And that was like his plight for so long. I feel like her <laughs> talent was to take these people and like, Oh, here's Zoe Deschanel sort of like a funny character actor. Well now she's on new girl and like everybody knows who she is. Mm-hmm. She can do that. So I don't know that. But maybe maybe that's the maybe that's fate, She's never able to like do that fifty million dollar movie.
0: Yeah, I mean that movie doesn't exist anymore anyway.
1: Uh, let's talk about this movie some more. What do you want to say? So yeah, after this blow up at this uh, year after remembrance for his dead brother, Jack the Mark Duplass character is encouraged by Emily Blunt's Iris to go to her uncle's compound on the San Juan islands. And he goes there on his bicycle, takes the ferry really cool, like slice of that part of the world in Seattle. And like, just going through the motions of getting to this cool place uh, that really sets how remote we are from their daily lives. It's
0: an interesting reversal that, of... Uh, that's where Jack Nicholson goes, the back half of Five Easy Pieces. Um, and it's just like oh, so that's, horrifying that's how how stuck he is out there in this family. And this is the flip of that.
1: That's the flip, yeah. But anyway, Mark Duplass gets to this like really cool-looking uh, cabin thing in the woods. And Rosemary DeWitt has already staked a claim to the house that weekend because her life is also upside down after leaving her girlfriend of seven years sort of on the fly because they couldn't really come to an accord about whether or not they were going to have kids. Mm -hmm. And that puts in motion another night of heavy drinking. Right. That seems to be a trope in these. uh, Tequila this time. One night of tequila this time which leads to a bout of very brief intercourse, <laughs> which is so funny. What? I thought that was maybe the biggest laugh of the film is like his, his two humps. Ah, sorry, sorry, ah, sorry. sorry. Ah, I got the wrong house and I, I, Hey, you're Hannah. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. I'm Iris' friend, Jack. You're on an island. It's three in the
0: morning. And you're drinking by yourself. What's going on? I just walked out on a seven-year relationship. Whoa. Hence the tequila.
1: I gotta say, not so terrible to have a drinking buddy. But going I'm down, down. Oh. getting weird. <laughs> Jack! What are you doing here? What? You is my sister been wanting you to meet? I us. did. We met last night. I know it's crazy. How? What, why are you? What? How did? The, what are you doing here? You don't think she'd be upset if you? Why? Because she's your sister I'm yeah. her best friend And it's weird Do you have a thing for my sister? I, I do not have a thing for your sister
0: But it's the whole kind of Underwhelming But heartfelt life cycle Of a hookup uh, From like the moment somebody puts the bottle On the table to uh, The morning after And not just none of it's like sensationalized either Like that's, I know you I agree with you she's very good at teeing up sitcom things but she's also very good at like not falling back on them cuz like it doesn't have to be in the scene like this horror show of awkwardness it's just like well that really wasn't what either of us wanted but it did happen
1: I agree but I also think that my thesis holds true because like this movie also has You know, that, oh, don't tell my sister because she'll be really upset. And It's like, oh, no, she won't be. And then it turns out that she really is, (laughs) you know. And then, of course, this movie shifts from, like, sitcom to hour-long drama uh, when, if I can spoil this movie at all, it turns out that Rosemary DeWitt's character... Sort of instigated the sex between them because she was trying to get pregnant. Right. Which is kind of a weird turn that, like, I don't know that this movie quite sticks. What do you think?
0: Uh, I don't think the. I think it tees up too much anger and darkness and deceit to resolve so quickly.
1: I do think that this is a pretty juicy character for Rosemary DeWitt, of course, who then won the Independent Spirit Award for this role. Totally. But it's a lot of work that maybe, like, performance level is great, but, yeah, a whole arc of a movie that, you know, really needs to be a comedy at the end of the day, like, doesn't necessarily need.
0: I am with you, and the thing is, I don't think Duplass can stand up to it um i really had been i'd also been thinking about joe swanberg quite a bit because if there's some overlap and these uh the actors that would appear in shelton's films and swanberg's films and also just they share they share a style um but uh if i can draw some arbitrary lines i'm a jake johnson guy not a mark duplass guy and Interesting. I think that uh, when the character writing and development is as good as it is in the script in a movie like Hump Day, Duplass, great job. In a movie like this, he's the one who's all fucked up and sad and mean and wayward, but the movie doesn't really put a... F- Uh, for me, not a fine enough point on like what needs to change for him. And because he doesn't have the natural gravitas and soulfulness of someone like a Jake Johnson, he kind of just gets blown off the screen by DeWitt and Blunt.
1: So much so that the movie literally has to send him on this journey of riding his bike, having the chain fall off and then him like destroying the bike in order for him to be like, fine, I'll help you raise this baby
0: character too.
1: (laughs) Yes. No, you're right that this character isn't much different than the Hump Day character. He's just put in a more interesting script this time, and he can't really like carry it with his, you know, tall guy from the league swagger as much as he could with Hump Day because it was played for funnier results than that. Whereas this one, it's he doesn't quite land. You know, I want to point out before we rate this
0: uh, a visual moment that actually speaks to the point the scene where they all come together at the end and preach forgiveness or and are in like a true triangle of like, here's how we'll come together to love each other and potentially raise this child. I don't know if it's in the script or not, but Rosemary DeWitt makes the decision to hug Iris as Duplass is giving his big confessional speech that, yes, I love you too. And just that small motion, um, steals the show and changes the geometry of that triangle to what you said is like this is a movie about sisters like i'm watching their dynamic even as this guy is saying the most important thing in his heart um i think it's a great moment but it also speaks to the imbalance of the movie
1: but maybe that's by design like that's always plausible too that the movie's trick is that you know it's not about this straight white guy figuring out his sadness it's about the two women around him like reconciling their relationship and ultimately that's more interesting or maybe this one's bad good like maybe i don't quite believe the reveal enough that i i think this movie is entertaining for that like hang out at a cool place for a couple of days renting this movie with a free ifc subscription is much cheaper than getting an airbnb kind of kind of way in these troubling times but yeah I think it's a. I think it's a bad good. Okay,
0: um, I would be more likely to give it a good bad personally. While I respect almost any Big Chill comparison, you even if you were comparing Big Chill to Yumi and Dupree, um, I don't know if the chill is that chill. I do like the terrible looking vegan pancakes. I do like the kind of that's a good moment. You know, if you've ever been in a, like a cabin with a bunch of people where like there's not quite enough food, but you're all drinking coffee all the time, like you are prone to get pretty grouchy because you've all been drinking too so much sure. coffee and not eating enough. Um, yeah, just not my not my favorite.
1: I don't know. I'm I'm there for the hang. It has a real joshy vibe to it that I was there for.
0: Don't even. <laughs> I remind you that the. Alison Brie's character kills herself in the first two minutes of Joshie, graphically.
1: That was maybe a little too much, but the rest of it. Love that Adam Pally just like doing drugs in Ojai or wherever they are. So,
0: as we're 60% of the way through here, let's talk about her TV career a little bit. Can I talk about the Mad Men episode she made? Please. It's season four. It's uh, on hands and knees. It's a really good episode, as every Mad Men episode is in season four, five, and six. That show is just incredible to rewatch. But it's also very Lynn Shelton. This is the episode, tell me if you remember this, it's the episode where Lane Price's dad comes to New York. Father,
1: come with me. I'd like you to meet someone, properly this time. Tony Charles. This is my father, Robert Price. How do you do? <laughs> Pleasure to meet you again. How are you finding the city? Are you enjoying yourself? I oh, am. Yeah. Very well, then. What do you say we all head to dinner and get acquainted? As delightful as that sounds, I'm afraid I'm travelling tomorrow. I'm terribly sorry. Oh. Oh, that's too bad. But please, go on ahead. I don't want to ruin your evening.
0: And Lane Price is the the Jared Harris character, who's sort of like the, right. the money man of the firm. And he kind of like, he's had this in the previous season, he's had this like night out with Don where he got acquainted and, you know, got into sort of like the New York swing New York scene. Um, and then he like tries to introduce his old mean dad to like, um, this, uh, Bunny tail cocktail waitress uh, Who's a black woman who he's been dating And Don is just like very uncomfortable With the whole thing And it's the discomfort Played for both like Laughs and jitters Is very Lynn Shelton And also it's a great She also has this way of All these movies are people Deciding too quickly That they're going to change their lives dramatically And then getting sort of regurgitated back to where they were, hopefully having learned something. And that is definitely what happens to, to poor old lane in that great episode.
1: That's interesting. You want to talk a little new girl? Oh, I love new girl. As you know, well, maybe like the earlier seasons. Sure. Um, there's a couple of interesting ones that she directed, including the one that kind of scratches at universal Healthcare care when Nick gets injured playing football and like doesn't have insurance and like can't afford to go to the ER, um, which is a funny one. And then one of my favorite episodes is when Nick starts writing the Pepperwood novels. This like character <laughs> who's like. <laughs> yeah. a So she directed that one as well. That's um, cool. I just can't connect with them, and I don't know why. Look, Jess, you can't teach people how to write. Not true. And I say that as a writer. Also not A writing true. class is for somebody who doesn't think lyrically in terms of, po- like, poetic words that just are strung.
0: You said you had a breakthrough. So I have this student whose name is Edgar, and he was not getting it. And then today, he turned in this amazing story. Nick, actually, you should read this.
1: Writers don't read, we write.
0: Jessica Day calls it a must-read. Oh, look at that font. What is this amateur hour? At least use good evening.
1: Yeah, they're just like seminal moments in that in that show. I um, also like that show, Casual. You ever watch that on Hulu? Uh-huh. It's not like great, but it's pretty good. It has adult themes.
0: Michaela Watkins is in it, and she is so Michaela fucking Watkins good. In the... it. Um, a couple Glow episodes I wanted to shout out. She's directed some of the best episodes of Glow. One of the great. Kind of social comedy episodes of the show Where Bash uh, is out of money And has all the, the Glow wrestlers Go to this um, anti-drug charity That his Nancy Reagan-esque mom is throwing And they play these ridiculous parts And then she just has straight up directed One of the most single memorable moments of the show Where Debbie, the Betty Gilpin character Gets all coked up And fucks up Alison Bree's leg Which I think is one of the top moments of the show So, good shit so, shall we go to 2014's Laggies?
1: So with the success of your sister's sister, or at least the critical success, this one feels like a Hollywood movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it has establishing shots of Seattle's Space Needle. It, you know it has the whole cast of mostly people you either know or have seen before. Uh, it feels like it has like five or ten million dollars to play with.
0: I really don't know if it's that much, but considering the budget of your sister's sister was a hundred and twenty-five thousand, <laughs> it might be two million, and that's how you get the glass on it. It's also a really early uh, A twenty-four movie. Sure. So yeah, she's interacting with you know what will become like the indie studio of the decade, maybe Neon. Sorry, Neon. I don't want to. I don't want to shut you down, but box
1: office Mojo says five million.
0: Okay, there you go.
1: So your boy got it right on the head.
0: I'm sorry, my boy.
1: This movie's funny because in a world where like I've seen Lady Bird and Book Smart, it's almost like this movie's like a rehash of some of those things and then that kind of like Jason Reitman what does it mean being an adult young adult <laughs> thing kind of fused together. But I maybe this is just predicting that because it kinda came before it. To stay for dinner?
0: Is it make your own pizza night?
1: Sure, great idea. Honey, I don't want to see you throw away your education. You have an advanced degree.
0: I've waited to
1: do this for so long. <gasps> no, no, whoa, get up, get up. Just
0: a second. I need to lay low for a week. <laughs> My dad's running some lame divorcee mixer, so he'll be late. <laughs> Dad, you're supposed to knock.
1: Wow, high school students are looking rougher and rougher these days.
0: Who are you? It's kind of hard to explain. Hey, did you hear the one about the grown woman who started hanging
1: out with a bunch of pubescent kids? No, what? No, I'd never heard of it before either. Well, so this one has that quintessential what does it mean to be an adult thing character in the Kira Knightley role. Mm -hmm. Uh, She plays Megan, who's a 30-something who's just gotten an advanced degree or she's 29. She's an aimless 28 year
0: old. Wikipedia says,
1: Oh, well, if it says it on Wikipedia, an aimless 28 year old who just got an advanced degree in like marriage counseling or something like that, like just doesn't quite have a job yet. And she's goofing around flipping her dad's like, come get your taxes done here sign in the parking lot of the strip mall or whatever. And then she kind of has a panic attack at a wedding. Oh, because her her long term boyfriend oh. proposes on the dance floor at somebody else's wedding. You know, people cool. give me shit for wanting to propose a Yankee Stadium on the uh, scoreboard <laughs> in, in the seventh inning, but I think this is worse.
0: It's way worse. Are you kidding? You can't propose it's at way somebody worse. else's so wedding. She
1: freaks out. And befriends some local teens and then lies to her in very Lynn Shelton uh, form, lies to her friends and goes away for a few days by like going to a sleepover as someone 10 years older than the people she's sleeping over with. Right. Um, and that yields. So I think the first third of this movie, if I will, like it has its like, you know, sort of slow jog towards its sitcom maybe a little bit creepy almost like Terry's Y. Goffian premise. <laughs> uh-huh. And then it kind of cools off a little bit until the emergence of, of one Sam Rockwell.
0: A thing we should say is that this, Lynn Shelton didn't write this movie. She has a writing right. credit on all the other ones. Uh, some of them are her ideas in total. This is Andrea Siegel, who I did not see had written that many other things.
1: Um, I don't think she had I had read that this was like one of those like blacklist scripts that was sitting around well you have like a 24 bring in like a promising talented director and it's like here's a pile of you know 12 scripts like make one of them yeah and she pulls out the one that's like approximately her taste and style with not quite maybe the teeth of the better movies that I mentioned earlier totally and then this one becomes again. I mean, she's great at like messing with is this a drama or a comedy? But in this one, it's so rigorous a studio movie in a lot of senses. Like you kind of need to pick in order to make the ending satisfying.
0: Yeah, there is something, there's something sneaky psychological about the form when you have a movie, like you said, that is glossy and has establishing shots where you can't. You can't just jump back and forth in people's brains the way that you can when you've brought them into your, you know, camera at the dinner table world. And I also, I don't know. Let's so let's just talk about Kira. I love Kira Knightley. I constantly want the best for her. Um, I think that she really needs to play like a Cersei Lannister part somewhere along the way. Um, but she is far, far, far too antic to make this you know aimless person feel remotely real
1: right it's such like a katherine han character yeah and it's so weird to see the female lead from pirates of the caribbean like try to take that on right um and yeah she has no yeah, chill it's, it's a f- she does not have any chill and you it's hard to buy into her like doing that Charlize Theron thing in young adult when she'll like buy, you know, uh, alcohol for minors. Yeah. Like it seemed, in this one, it seemed so like pathological and it was like kind of creepy when I don't think like that was the read there. I agree.
0: She can neither calm down and be natural like Catherine Hahn, nor can she be just inherently dark and watchable like Charlize Theron. So you end up with this yes. sort of like odd contradiction of like, why does this very sort of like fancy, graceful seeming person, why are they acting like a baby almost? Like, for instance, how did this person who um, is too scared to go to a career fair, how did she get her master's in counseling?
1: Right. You know? Well, that's the thing, too, is the... I think the the film has, or the script has flaws in it that are, are just like, yeah, those sort of movie logic things of, oh, this person's, right, too shy to spend a weekend getting a job, but, right, like, defended her dissertation a couple months ago. Right. And then it kind of washes over it with that throwaway line of, like, oh, I, I was in my internship, but I couldn't connect with any of my patients. And it's like, is that really what this movie's about? It's like, are you a sociopath and you, like, can't? Because I think it's more, I think Lynn Shelton thinks it's more a movie about privilege. Mm. And that's where maybe like it's best, but also like where it doesn't end wholly in a satisfying place.
0: I'm on board with that. Rockwell, though. So our friend of the show, multiple time guest Kira Wardlow, whom we really like, I had just watched this on Letterboxd, and she expressed a sentiment that I agree with, which is like, boy, it's really nice to see Sam Rockwell in this mid-2010s indie mode, like, not playing a white supremacist for, like, prestige. (laughs) And it is nice just to see him, like, with that goofy attitude and all that hair and being, like, really, like, smart, but, like, also super dumb for laughs, um... He's got that great moment where Kiera Knightley's like, "Oh, do you, I'm going to tell you the lawyer joke that everyone knows. What do you call five thousand lawyers at the bottom of the ocean?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, a yeah, good start. What do you call the one about the woman who starts hanging out with teenagers for no reason? Uh, there is no joke about that. What is wrong with you?"
1: Right. No, it's it's great, and you wonder again like how much of its script and how much of it is like just the actors having fun in the scene. Um, and he's definitely having fun there. Yeah, it is great to see him in a just like a goofy little dad role. He brings a certain like gravitas to it that I think steadies the movie to a place where it's surprising to me that this movie like wasn't, I mean, other than being a little boring, you'd think it would be more watched.
0: You would. Yeah. It doesn't make sense that young adult made $21 million and this made two
1: because they feel
0: of the same.
1: They're very similar, uh, yeah.
0: I, I hesitate to keep using the word mumblecore, but I think as, you know, Andrew Bujalski, who invented the term as a joke and then had it thrown back at him for the rest of his career to mean something he didn't want. Um, I think that, but I think that style of like, you know, a movie that is based on talking and like conversations that just go on and on and on, when they, when they work It's because there is something that the actor brings, a pathos, that the actor brings to what is otherwise just a beige room um, and a conversation that goes on long enough for you, like you said, to make you feel like it's a conversation that you had with your best friend or your partner or your ex. And then there is a sort of magical alchemy there where it's just like, I can't believe drinking buddies made me feel the way it made me feel. When it was just people talking in a room and these people not doing that much. When you don't have that alchemy, though, you're left with just, like, pieces of a thing. And I really felt that in this movie, where it's like, okay, this was a lot of, there was a lot of scattered talent and a lot of words were said. I have a hard time saying, like, this part sucked, but it didn't congeal into the great thing.
1: I mean, I think that what this movie lacks is that, like, younger person POV to show how, like, magical slash weird this setup would be. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it almost feels like that movie that um, Pete Davidson did that's, like, a Hulu original where he's, like, the old guy hanging out with the young person. It's, like, kind of creepy, but it's like more from the kids POV or even like in super bad where they like get into what's his name's car to like find booze at this party. Yeah. You know, like you never want it to be like the movie from that, like creepy weirdo. Like Joe LaTrulio is not the star (laughs) nor should he be of super bad. Well said. So maybe that's where, maybe that's a, if, if it has a fatal flaw, it's just like in the concept. Sure. How do we rate laggies I think it might be a bad bad I'll give it a
0: bad good It's fine um, It's not a great Lynn Shelton movie and it's not useful For this exercise because I don't really feel A lot of her In it Other than like these thing- Yes this is a copy of sorts Of what she likes to do
1: Alright 2019 Last year Did you see Sword of Trust last year? No, I can't say that I even had heard of it.
0: Oh, I'm surprised you missed it, Marin devotee that you are.
1: I resent that accusation. I feel like I'm a fan. I listen when there's an interesting person on his conversation chat show WTF. (laughs) But I don't think I... I guess I also watched maybe the first two seasons of his eponymous IFC series but I don't know that I'd call myself a devotee. Oh my God.
0: Okay. Accepted. You know what? Actually, I want to say something. No, I
1: think had I known about this earlier, I probably would have watched Uh it. This setup for sort of trust reminds me of like a David Mamet script or something. There's something like American Buffalo. Have you ever seen that play? (laughs) No. I mean, it's also set in a pawn shop and they get in this, this buff, this American Buffalo nickel. And it, like, tears apart the fabric of the... Because it's worth a lot of money. It tears apart the fabric of the people working at the... And hanging out at the pawn shop. Anyway, very similar setup here. Cynthia and Mary, played by Jillian Bell, who I like. And Michaela Watkins from Casual, I also like. Um, I thought they were sisters at first, but they're actually girlfriends. Mm -hmm. Uh, Show up to collect Cynthia's inheritance from her deceased grandfather... But the only item she receives is an antique sword that was believed by her grandfather to be proof that the South won the Civil War.
0: What you're looking at yes, is a genuine relic that supports the actual truth, which is the South mm-hmm. won the war.
1: Okay. The South won the war? That's
0: right. This is something it's, you want to keep under your hat till you're ready it to seems not like keep it. Seems
1: like pretty big news. Head. The best way to do this is through concrete evidence. Is this antique roadshow for racists? Up to $50,000. God damn it. What's the deal? 70-30 sounds fair to me. Don't touch. I can't touch the tag. Don't touch the
0: tag. Honey, 70-30? Is it 70 for us? No. No deal.
1: 30 for us. No deal.
0: So they try to pawn it to
1: Mark Marin. Mel. Yeah, so Mark Maron owns this pawn shop and this whole thing takes place in Birmingham Alabama right like I couldn't figure out at first like why the hell this, this is a, like a Seattle story because all the other movies are set in <laughs> Seattle not. and I was like this why would there be Civil War memorabilia like here of all places but anyway no it's set in Alabama and John Bass is his like he just started showing up every day that was three years ago co-worker right um, so John Bash is Nathaniel's also like a he's like a nine eleven anti-vax truther kind of the world is flat and crispy and crispy. he believes all the things
0: <laughs> I think I think crunchy
1: earth theory what is it hollow earth
0: hollow earth theory yeah um yeah I think with one major exception He's like watching them For entertainment Which is also Kind of scary commentary That like there's just like You know airheaded people Are like I'll see what this person Has to say about The earth being in the hollow And then all of a sudden You're QAnon. Um, So I have some quibbles But in general This goes back to quibbles. The thing that I really like About Hump Day So this is a script That she co-authored With Mike O'Brien a Writer for SNL Writer for Seth Meyers And it has that Big kind of kooky comedy premise that will drive the movie forward and but then you're allowed to have really intimate interesting give and take moments between the actors inside of it um which i guess i found out this week is my favorite kind of lynn sheldon movie
1: interesting this movie has some internal like some interesting internal politics too, because mm-hmm. it definitely does run up to the, you know, like people who believe in conspiracy theories and like people who believe that the South actually, like these are actual things that, you know, I, it's all new to me folks, but apparently people in this country actually believe.
0: Well, that's uh, the funny thing about this movie is like they, they throw some out about like these, uh, you know, Confederate-loving truthers who were like, and Abraham Lincoln had Marfan's syndrome. And I was like, that's so funny. That's so ridiculous. What a good, like, cherry on top. And then I was like, oh, shit. Do I need to look up whether that's an actual theory?
1: I'm sure it is. I don't have the heart to look some of I these don't either. Up, I couldn't Google it. I read the news, and, uh, you know, people believe that the coronavirus was started in a lab in Wuhan. Right. Uh, so... But maybe it was, Chance. Stop. Like, you have to think outside of the box sometimes.
0: (laughs) Well, that's why I love that. So it's Mike O'Brien in the opening video where he's just, um, you know, railing against people, telling them to please be free thinkers. You can't just, like, accept stuff just because people tell it to you. And then he goes, so, hollow earth theory. Is the earth hollow? Yes, it is. (laughs) 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 So we're going to talk a lot about Mark Marin, I assume, but well, my- that's the
1: interesting thing about this movie is I think it ties or it asks some interesting questions about, um, their relationship because clearly this character is based on Mark Maron's life. He was born in New Mexico and then moved to New York city, uh, where he then got involved with his first wife and got into heavy drugs. Mm-hmm. He did not then move to Birmingham, Alabama. He moved to Los Angeles and interviewed the uh, president and interviewed the president on his highly popular chit-chat show what WTF f? what the f <laughs> um, but it also brings together yeah these two creative and romantic partners and to i mean it was like we were talking about in the opening like give this person his best light and almost like when he's cause Lynn Sheldon's actually in this movie. I mean, she's an extra in some of the other ones, but in this one she plays the role of the drug addict girlfriend. Who's like still trying to get it together after Mark Maron's character has been sober for 15 years or whatever and feeling the, whether or not he's responsible for this person, like really is the crux of his emotional arc, which to me like pulls back that, you know, what is the movie and what is real life? Cause it seems to say a lot about, you know, committing to a relationship and bringing this person like to where you are by opening up.
0: My biggest takeaway when I saw this movie last year is that I wish that Lynn Sheldon acted more. I think she is phenomenal in the five minutes of screen time that she has here. She hits upon, she's very good. She hits upon this. I don't know if it's just because of the openness of her as a human being, but of this person who the script and Mark Marin's reaction lets you know right away has like lied a lot and left a lot of hurt on people. But really is there needing something this time for real and to do that convincingly and in such a way that it makes you question Mel's answer is very hard to do and then she's not in the rest of the movie, but you think about her the whole time.
1: You do. She looms large. I mean, there's the course, the, the shot of her uh, uh, just outside the laundromat. Right. So you sort of like see her in the world. But yeah, she's no, she, like they don't reconnect at all. Uh, but there's that very touching scene where he gets her car fixed at the end. Indeed. My question, Chance, is this a crime movie? Um, it kind of has that crime movie setup, though, where they like meet the guy who takes them to the kingpin.
0: I'm just not into that shit. That's like asking if Pineapple Express is a crime movie. And I just like, yes. I'm, no, I'm not into it. It's too it's too much of a joke. It's all just like references to other like, you know, outs- outsized cultural references. Like, I think it's funny, but I don't buy it's crime movie bona fides.
1: Uh, that's a conversation for another time.
0: Okay. Crime movie bona fides, a spinoff podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network.
1: Crime movie colon. Yeah, I think this movie has a lot of fun. I ask you about the crime stuff, because I think this movie has more fun with genre than, you know, a lot of the other ones. And it seems to because she has this cohort of talent around her now, um, it's she can pull off these kinds of like winkier movies that, you know, can be serious for a second. Someone can pull out a gun. Like, it, it surprised me that the gun never goes off mm-hmm. because that's the... You think the sword... I mean, you sort of like a Chekhovian sword thing. Like, right. I guess the sword is used when they just kind of, like, hit the guy with it because it's uh, totally M- blunt. Michaela
0: Watkins hits him very hard.
1: <laughs> she does hit him very hard with it. Um,
0: yeah. I think it's an interesting movie about these, like... Uh, Subcultural discourses too Both more plainly on the Conspiratorial side but I think for pretty Good comedy like even like What is the discourse of a pawn Shop and when the Jillian Bell Character like makes up that expression Where she you know she's Looking at this um this cream pitcher that's shaped like a cat And she like storms back in and she's like is this cat pitcher true to tag And they're all Like what what's true to Tag and then she just pays the Asking price for it
1: Jillian Bell's great at, like, taking on the you-sound-crazy, uh, like, conspiracies yeah. that Nathaniel's throwing out at her, uh, which is great. And Marin, of course, like, literally gets to do the Mark Marin thing of, like, sitting on a ledge and telling you about his drug problem. Yeah. Which is incredible. That's, like, one of the best... I think it's one of the highlights of the movie is that it is sort of like a small Mark Marin special right in the middle.
0: 100%. Like the whole time you're keenly aware that it's Maron's persona, but that's where you actually remember Maron's talents as a monologuist. It's like, yeah, I'll watch it right. for five minutes. Um, well, yeah. And I think there is like a little bit of self-effacement too of him. Um, you know, there's that random patron looking at the the Charlie Patton artwork and, Marin's like this person who doesn't even want to buy it is just like, well, Charlie Patton. You must know of his connection to Robert Johnson, right? Actually, I'm not gonna sell that. I like it too much.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very high fidelity.
0: There, yeah, there's definitely like a version of Marin too that like ends up in this spot, like not selling Charlie Patton paintings to people who don't want them. <laughs> Also, yeah. super good Marin comedy bit is uh, where the two rednecks hold him at screwdriver point. One of whom is did you see Whitmer Thomas had an HBO special called The Golden One. No, incredible. He's a he's an Alabama guy. Um, but yeah, where they've like been asking like, you seem sort of East Coast. <laughs> and- And they like talk about all the states on the East Coast, and then they actually like get him at Screwdriver Point, and of course they say like, "You fucking Jew." And Marin goes, "Yeah, I knew that's what you meant by East Coast."
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty good.
0: Yeah, I like this movie. If I have quibbles, it is the uh, moments where the comedy, and I don't know if this is just Mike O'Brien's contribution. It feels like almost like sketchy sometimes, to the point where it's like, I don't know why we're cutting back. To Jillian Bell And John Bass Like talking about Flat Earth In the middle of like What should be like A revealing confessional Or maybe even action Set piece For sure I think John Bass in general Is like the comedic relief element Is just too
1: obvious Interesting It's funny because I mean it's, it's an interesting character Of being like totally sympathetic And a little bit like pitiful But then it his his opinions and his like beliefs in these these conspiracies is like so overwhelming that it's like hard not to be horrified and kind of hate him a little at the end so he really does straddle that line in a funny way i don't know that it adds a whole lot of tension to the the movie as you describe, but yeah i think this is my second favorite of all the movies we watched me
0: too what was your first sister sister
1: i think sister sister was my favorite yeah and what an interesting body of work too indeed
0: I really appreciate the unpretentious normalcy of these movies at the same time as I appreciate how they experiment and uh, rest in peace Lynn Shelton listeners we shall talk to you next week we're coming back with a Val Kilmer show so watch your favorite Val I'm sure we'll uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it No, I'll see you soon
1: can't wait buddy always good to see your face Seattle. I love you. This is the story of your red right angle and how it came to meet your leg.